Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. This episode, as with all of our U.S. Open content, is brought to you by Greater Than Sports Drink. Greater Than is the first coconut water-based sports drink. They are delicious and deliver two times the electrolytes with no added sugars. You can use the promo code THEFRIEDEGG on drinkgt.com for 20% off your first purchase. That's the fried egg with no spaces. The other option is you can sign up for their subscription service and have Greater Than delivered right to your door every month. With your subscription this week, you will get a free fried egg hat. That's drinkgt.com to purchase Greater Than. And if you go with the promo code, the promo code is the fried egg with no spaces for 20% off. Without further ado, here's Brendan Porath and Sean Martin. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. I am joined by Sean Martin of the PGA Tour and uh, Brendan Porath of SB Nation. Guys, welcome on. Thanks for having us. Andy, thanks for having me back. You know, what a, what a call by Brendan with the uh, feeling the repeat of the Brooks Kepka win at, uh, at Shinnecock. You know, every now and then you, you put up a shot and it goes in. I, I'm not a hero. I'm not a genius. Uh, but I just got this one right. And I appreciate the credit. You know, a lot of times people just try to put you down when you get one wrong. Like you, you know, <laughs> Xander Shoffley, he was he was in the mix a little bit. But T6, come on, that's not winning. So uh, I'm very, very proud of my call. It took a lot of courage to go out there and uh, pick the defending champ. You know, pick one of the very best players in the world. But you know, I went out went out on that limb, and I'm, I'm happy it paid off. <laughs> you know, you you guys are uh, you're missing the point of the first question. You know, now we've got Xander Schauffele with the second uh, second straight <laughs> top ten in the U.S. Open. So plays more to the the underrated card, maybe. <laughs> this this mistake is gonna like haunt my career. I feel like it's just it's inescapable. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's going to be a tough one. You know, when you make make comments like that, you know, without any context around them. <laughs> well, especially, I mean, I've been doing this for about a dozen years now, and I feel like I've never been recognized at a course until at the U.S. Open. I had like three people call me, just random fans in the gallery, and, and say, hey, nice work on the Fried Egg podcast. So I feel like uh, the Fried Egg is both my biggest gift, uh, but then also just it's a career-defining mistake. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, what do you guys think of the uh, the action at at Shinnecock? Go ahead, Sean. You know, at the end of the day, and I thought Curtis Strange had a great point. Uh, he kind of said, you know, Brooks, uh, he didn't get the credit he deserved for winning last year because everyone talked about it. it wasn't a real U.S. Open, quote unquote. Uh, and so now, winning at Shinnecock, it doesn't get much truer of a U.S. Open test than Shinnecock, and so that proves that. 
he just has what it takes to, to compete at this event. And so I think that was the biggest thing. It, it confirmed that Brooks isn't just some mindless basher, that his game is a lot more well-rounded than we realized. I think, I think people saw it first at Colonial. He scrambled really well uh, to put pressure on Justin Rose there, and then he did it again this week, scrambled really well. So, And that's the same thing with Dustin, too, we saw it. Everyone just gets so obsessed with length that they're like, oh, these guys are just bombers. But uh, they both hit it fairly straight for how far they hit it, and then they have uh, good short games as well. Yeah, I lo- I love the uh, ambient airport noise, Sean. It's really pleasant. <laughs> Sorry, nice, no. nice I gotta touch. get home eventually. I'm a family man. I gotta get home eventually. And bring some authenticity as as a <laughs> you know reporter on the ground here. Uh, you know, I I actually just wrote like about a thousand words on this, or not just, but this morning, last night. You know, I think like I don't know. I'd ask Andy like before the week. You know, let's set aside all the freaking car crashes in the middle of it and running into the guardrail and screwing up this or that, Phil. But like at the start of the week, if you said the top-ranked strokes gain approach player is going to win at Shinnecock and the guy who's second in that stat on Sunday is going to win at Shinnecock, I think that's probably what you'd want and what you'd hope for at a venue like this, right? I mean, that's that's what we reduced Kepka to just the biceps and the power, but... You know, it's hard to look past the biceps. Right, sure, but like we reduce it to nothing more than that and you know his approach game was what won him the championship his scrambling you know certainly 11 14 other spots is what kind of kept kept dustin kept you know eventually fleetwood at arm's length it was so much more than driving and and driving actually wasn't really a part of this win and i think like despite all the intervening missteps the mistakes the you know phil's rake gate and mike davis having more press conferences and all this stuff like at the start of the week you wanted the best you know ball striker to win and the best ball striker this week won and the best ball striker or second best ball striker was second yep right and Fleetwood missed eight fairways for the whole week by the way that's okay that's pretty good um yeah I agree I think Brooks was was clearing away the best all-around player I think what the golf course did exceptionally well was it it really zeroed in on what people weren't doing well and like we saw on I remember after the second round they you know Mark Brody put up his strokes gained stats and you saw just that sorry you know security alerts there's a long one you can't find a quiet room PGA Tour doesn't have you uh on, uh, you know, the United Club or whatever? Come on. Uh, Islet Airport is even smaller than Jacksonville's airport. And I, there's no there's no United Club here. Okay. So, so. so anyway, so uh, it, it identified, and after after Friday, Mark Brody put up those strokes gain stats, and you saw the glaring thing with Dustin was he was losing shots in approach, and he was putting out of this world good, like un, unforeseen good putting. And uh, sure enough, over the weekend, that putting, putter cools off, and all of a sudden he tumbles down the leaderboard. Yeah, the iron play was disconcerting. I was, you know, I, I saw a lot of those tweets. Uh, I was kind of defending, and I was wrong, the point that I thought Dustin would be fine, because I thought, you know, the, if they were both to level out and return to the mean, he'd gain a few more strokes with the iron play on the weekend and then lose a few more with the putting and it wasn't like he was holding 30 footers from all over the place. It was just that he was making every six footer uh, that he needed to make. And 
obviously that just stopped. Um, you know, the greens got a little bumpy. I think that was a part of it. But it's, I mean, he was the seventh guy to take a four shot lead uh, at the halfway point of U.S. Open, and only the second to to lose it, which is a little bit disconcerting, especially after earlier this season. You know, he lost a six shot lead at the HSBC, and you know, I was talking to Kyle about it. The only major that he's won was one where he didn't know what his score was because of the whole penalty thing. And I think, I don't know, maybe I'm overanalyzing, but I think that kind of helped him. He just decided, well, I just got to play. I don't know where I stand on the leaderboard. Uh, but he's, Dustin, uh, he's, he's lost some leads. And obviously we saw that early in his career with Pebble and all those other things, but still, still kind of happens more than you would think with him. It's pretty amazing that now Brooks Kepka has more majors than Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, um, Jason Day. You know, a, a, a list of players that... Sean McKeel. Yeah, Sean McKeel. But um, what do you guys think about, uh, you know, Brooks Kepka and, you know, he's got two U.S. Opens and now only one PGA Tour event that he's won. And, you know, what do you think about the three-peat and why why doesn't he win more on the PGA Tour? Um, I, think- I think just because the, the PGA Tour is a second-rate organization with second-rate employees. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding, Sean. I would hope so. <laughs> just kidding, Sean. Uh, no, I, I think Don't get just... me started on SB Nation. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's not good. Um, yeah, I, I think... Uh, I think he just... You know, he's... Who do we see? Was it... Who said it was Angel Cabrera? Kyle Kyle Porter, I think, said that. I mean, there are these players that just get up for these majors, right? Big, I, big game hunters. Or, you know, I think that's... Or whatever... For whatever reason, the setups at regular events allow more kind of middling talents into the field or less... Kind of doesn't necessarily separate the wheat from the chafe as much. And maybe it's, it's sometimes... You know, there's fluky things for whatever reason that Kupka hasn't won. He certainly contended at a fair amount. But, um, you know, I, I think, like he said, he's like, I, I've been pretty disappointed with my career and only having one PGA Tour win. I think you can't argue with his major championship career. Setting aside the wins, we've heard it all, like, over the last 24 hours now, just how much he's so regularly in contention, whether it's every kind of test, whether it's a British Open or a U.S. Open. Masters, he plays well at these big events, and I think you know the three P. It's hard, you know, it's hard not to put him as the favorite for next year. Of course, we have twelve months, but Pebble Beach, you know, he played this one basically like at the start of the season with with minimal practice. Of course, he looked good for a day at the Players, looked good at Colonial, but he didn't play the Masters. He had, he didn't have much of a season under his belt, and he just came out and won it while while kind of everyone else crumbled on the weekend or. or you know, receded, I should say. So it's hard for me not to think, you know, at Pebble Beach, we we certainly won't overlook him now as a back-to-back champion, but, you know, I think he should be the favorite based on what we see and how his game uh, suits the U.S. Open. Yeah, I think he's one of those guys who just thrives on on tougher layouts. I mean, he finished second to Justin Rose at Colonial where he had to shoot, I think, 18, 17 under one. So, I mean, he can go low. It's not a concern, obviously. He's a great player, but I think he's just... You know, places like Shinnecock and, and U.S. Opens, they eliminate so much of the field because you're, you know, if you're missing fairways, he's strong enough that if he misses the fairways, he can muscle out and get it on the green or near the green. And, and if he gets it near the green, he can get up and down. And uh, He's long enough that when he does hit the fairway, he's hitting really high, towering fades that can hold these greens. So I think, you know, 
courses like Shinnecock, so many guys were eliminated before they even started play on Thursday that he's just a guy who excels. Uh, I mean, he's got the full package for a top golf course, and he's perfectly suited for these. I think, too, he's, the mental strength is big. I think, you know, he had some really great stuff to say when, you know, he's asked why he didn't complain about this setup. And he's just like, I'm just not going to make excuses. I like to, you know, like Nicholas said, I like to see when guys are eliminated because they start complaining about the course. So I think... I think he loves the challenge. Uh, he said he likes playing disciplined golf, which I thought was really cool to hear from a 28-year-old guy who's known as a bomber. Um, so I think he just he loves this challenge more than like an 18-under winning score. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it it's just a more rounded test, and you you see, you know, who the real class players are um, more often with these U.S. Opens. I think in particular Shinnecock is is more so than almost everywhere else. I mean, it, you. You guys saw it being out there like you can't not do something well. Like if you were a bad putter, you were going to have a lot of three putts out there. If if you were a bad chipper, like that short area, short grass around the greens was just going to eat you alive. Um, in terms of Saturday, you know, we get we got to talk about it. What 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 are your, you know, cliff note thoughts on what all that happened? I think one thing I loved, I feel like you were almost in damage control. There was just content being pumped out about why it was okay that some of these balls were rolling off the greens uh, from certain angles. And again, I think I was talking to Kyle and Brendan about this, but um, I just wish they had done a better job on, on TV explaining that to people. Why, hey, yeah, this guy's in the fairway, but he's on the wrong side of the fairway. And here's how he's being penalized for hitting out of the wrong side of the fairway. And that's why this ball that lands on the green is rolling off of the green. I just... That needs to be really well explained on television, partly because you can't see the contours of greens as well on TV, and then also just because I think, you know, not everyone's woke to width and angles. So I think that's really imperative for TV to kind of do the educational work that you were doing on Twitter. Um, but yeah, I mean, the golf course got away from them, and they, and they admit that. And I don't know, it's just it's it doesn't make sense. I mean, Friday it was it was early, it was it was damp, uh, it rained hard for a little bit, but it was damp, it was as soft as it was going to be, and it was still playing hard. They didn't need to mess with the golf course, but they just, they kind of just feel like they have to, I guess. So it wasn't good, but while no one enjoys like breathing in, consuming, shoveling with two spoons, the kind of USGA bashing and all, all the attendant drama with it, then me, um, I'm not sure like it's as bad as the, kind of outcry they made some bad pins they let the conditions get to a place they didn't want them to be but we start at a point with the u.s open that is there's no margin for error and i think it's so fascinating that as soon as one player as soon as one player comes off the course and in this case is zach johnson you know who can be prickly and and it's not like always the most measured guy i mean he just he lets it rip sometimes and he said you know, really dramatically, you know, like someone had just, you know, shot his dog out back. <laughs> like, it's gone. It's gone. No, we're not getting it back. We lost it. It's gone. Um, I hate it. I feel bad for the members. I feel like, you know, it's like a tragedy. Like, yes, the course probably, the course went to a place they didn't want it to be. But all it takes at a U.S. Open is one, one player to say that. And all the media pounces. All the other players, you see it as like an opening of the door and the gate to like tweet about it, to come in and like add to the chorus. Like, 
And it just kind of snowballs into the entire championship being wrecked. Whereas, like, you hear last night, like, people saying it was a mockery. And, and the, the U.S. Open was, uh, you know, they just they completely screwed it up again. Like, this wasn't 2004. It just it wasn't. They put a couple w- bad pins, and they had conditions get to a place they didn't think they would. Now, it was it over the line? Like, probably. But I, I think it snowballed based on Zach Johnson's comment. And that's all it takes at a U.S. Open because there is no margin. Like, there's never any going to be any, like, serious pushback. In fact, it's going to go the other way. Yeah, yeah. but the problem is I don't know why they feel like they have to toe the line. Like, you don't need to push the line at Shinnecock. There was one guy under par sure. after 36 holes. I, sure. th- I think the the thing that happened is, like, it was like they were a toenail above the line, like an untrimmed toenail above the line. They yeah. had two it's bad great imagery. Pins. Yeah, they had two bad pins. And, like, this is the thing that was driving me nuts was, like, We've gotten so far into this like kind of like soft golf that we see week to week that people like when somebody misses an approach shot on a on a par four into a short sided green side bunker from with a downslope lie and they can't hold the green, that's perfectly fine. That is okay. Yeah. That is fair. People, because they hit in, a, they hit it in the worst a, spot on the green. You know? Yeah, people aren't accustomed to the idea that, hey, just because you're in the fairway, that's not good enough, or just because it landed on the green, that's not good enough. They think, again, because of soft setups, that if you landed on the fairway, you did your job, and if you landed on your the green, you did your job. Well, when there's great architecture, like our boy William Flynn, uh, that's not necessarily the case. you got to do more than just that. Yeah, and, and we saw with like Brooks, Brooks and Justin Rose were on a really similar line. But Brooks played ten yards left of the flag and used the contours to, or I mean, Justin Rose used used the contours to move the ball into the pin to like five feet. Makes birdie. Brooks fires it at the flag, has too much spin on it, spins off into a bunker. It's like, you know, that's that's the thin margin that makes the U.S. Open so great. That's how it separates. You know, like you can't take a shot off out there, and like you even saw Ian Poulter talk about how he lost, you know, he lost his uh, his focus for a shot. And it ended up, you know, ruining his, the end of his second round where he played so great. Um, I think that's, you know, it has to be pretty close to the line. But, like, with Shinnecock, just like you said, Sean is in, and Brendan, is like, with Shinnecock, you could be at 85% of the line, and it would be spectacular, you know, every day. And I think yesterday we saw, like, 75 to 70% of the line because they overreacted and went the complete opposite way. And, yeah. you know, like 11 center pins on a Sunday of a U.S. Open to me is unacceptable. Like the pin on 11 was the was the pin the type of pin that we should have seen around the majority of the golf course where it really asked them to to step out of their comfort zone and hit a shot. And if they didn't hit the shot, they were they would get, you know, severely penalized or you could play 20 feet short like we saw with Tony Finau and make birdie. Yeah, I I would I I guess I'd ask you like what did you find more upsetting the Saturday, uh, the Saturday setup or yesterday? I mean Saturday obviously you're going to get much more vocal reaction about it from the players, but I mean, I think yesterday was pretty unfortunate. Like that that just sucked. I thought that was as much of a mistake by the USGA as uh, as as sun as Saturday. You know I, I just I'm not trying to be like a sadist here and wanting to see all these. You know, everyone kind of or masochists wanting to see all these people, you know, beat beat up. But like, I would just like it to be. You know, I thought they overreacted. 
Yeah, so I thought, like, you know, if you use 100% as, like, you're right on the line, like, an absolutely perfect spot. I think Saturday they were at 105%, and on yesterday they were at 70%. So yesterday was way worse in my mind um, in terms of, like, they had two bad pins, so maybe it was 110%. You know, two bad pins, and, and yesterday you could make an argument in the, on the same side that they had probably, like, seven or eight bad pins. You know, where, you know, you got to get, you can't test these guys if you put every pin in the center of the green because they're too good and they aren't ever going to miss when they're in the center of the green. You know, they're just going to miss very irregularly when you push them over to the edges and you force them to, to decide whether I'm going to go at the flag or whether I'm going to play it safe. That is, that is what you're trying to get out of the, you know, world's best players. And that is an actual test of their game you know it's not just you know if it's in the middle of the green it's point and shoot for these guys well i i uh i dq'd myself for the you know i, I left saturday night came home to watch on tv yesterday so i dq'd myself for phil sins so that he could be saved um uh, sean i want to know what what was it like on the ground there yesterday it's like they softened it up i mean it seemed like just seemed like a little bit of the air was taken out of taken out of like the the tension drama and and I don't know edginess of the whole thing. Yeah, I think uh, I mean actually I mean honestly the start of the final round was fun. I mean you had Patrick Reed yeah. birdie five out of seven. You had guys making birdies. Um, the hard part is, and I think that really it goes into like uh, green heights and how much you mow and roll. The problem is there's no humidity here. It's it was fairly warm and it's windy, so you can throw a ton of water on the golf course in the morning, but it's no matter what, it's going to dry out in the afternoon, and that's why we kept seeing these huge disparities between morning and afternoon on the weekend, and and so it was it was a cool mixture of like the front nine, all these guys are getting into the mix, and the back nine was just a grind, um, but you did, again, almost have, I mean, Fleetwood's round was amazing, and, and if he did win, he was a deserving winner, but I just... It, yeah, it was too much of a disparity as the day went on in that, scoring. That's kind of what the way I felt again is they did it in the same fashion as they made it, they tried to soften like that. The beauty and the you know the thing that makes Shinnecock so tough is the thing that makes Shinnecock like the world's best golf course is it's on this unbelievable piece of land. It's built on pure sand, so it dries out like you know you could be playing set to play there in the afternoon, get three inches of rain. And it'd be perfectly fine to play at one o'clock, you know, like, you know, the greens would have bounce and like, that's the beauty of Shinnecock Hills. And I think one of the things is they, when they tried to soften it so much yesterday, they just, all they did was the exact same thing. I yeah, I mean, guys talked about how it was two different golf courses when you made the turn, the late starters did. So the early starters obviously had all 18 holes of that, but then the late starters were like, and you saw it Sunday, the front nine and the back nine were two totally different golf courses. I mean, guys were tearing up. The front nine, I think Tron compared it to, I think he said he went soft, on the USGA went soft on the Millennials, and gave them all a <laughs> puppy and avocado toast. It was a great tweet. Uh, it looked like we were going to have just like 65s all over the place, but that wasn't the case because then the back nine, the more the course is out in those wings, the back nine was just so hard and guys were hanging on. It was fun to watch, but I don't know if it was necessarily the best display of the course. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. Phil. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm still, was, uh, I'm still waiting for his letter of apology to come through to my kids. You know, I, I think you know he needs to hand address 
put a stamp on each envelope and mail it to everyone involved in U.S. junior golf in this country, an apology for his actions. <laughs> Go ahead, Sean. I just, I, I mean, I definitely, I mean, I fall into the camp that I feel like a lot of people did. Well, at least a lot of media, uh, that it was, I feel like it's a serious breach. I mean, I thought Bamberger put it very well that, you know, forget the, you know, every, the rule, the 800 pages of the rule book and the decisions book, but it, the genesis of the game rule probably it might be one, one, it might not, but you play the balls and the lies and, uh, what Phil did just breaks that rule, which encompasses all rules, uh, and what the game is based around and, I think it should have been a serious breach. I think he should have been DQ'd. Um, it was amazing to me how many fans, though, thought the media was just being cranky media that just wanted to hammer Phil for it and didn't really, I guess, have a problem with it, which, I don't know, I just found that very surprising. Uh, it's not a good precedent. I don't. I mean, there's very few situations where I think people would feel like they want to run after their ball and whack it to take the two strokes, but, I mean, it's the, you have a precedent now. You have a legal precedent on it so i feel like they need to rewrite that rule um i don't think i'm ever gonna forget that image because i i had just gotten i had gotten home i was i was like i was like laying in bed watching i was really tired i barely got any sleep and like i mean like my immediate reaction was like wait what the fuck just happened (laughs) (laughs) did that really just like you know that was one of the most amazing things i've ever seen in a golf tournament i mean it was it was absolutely crazy. And, you know, with regards to, like, kind of the way I would view the situation, like, all right, if Dylan Meyer had done that, would he have been playing golf past that hole? Right. I think the one thing I didn't like either was that the technicality they freed Phil on was that because it was a golf stroke, because he took an actual stroke at it versus, like, raking it, it yeah. was okay. Yeah. And I that's not a... Just because what he did looked like a golf stroke, which really it didn't because he was, he was in motion while he was doing it, uh, it was okay. And I just, yeah, I mean, I was lazy journalist. I was in the media center stuffing my face with free lunch. And I saw, <laughs> and it was like, I just, you're just in shock. You're like, did that, did that really just happen? Did, is, was this from a practice round? What are they, are they showing a replay from Tuesday? What's going on here? And then it was, yeah, it was amazing. I, I think that's, that's a great point, Sean. Uh, it's just such a technicality. We're getting we got so in the weeds on this about like this rule supersedes this one or this rule it's already covered by this rule, so we can't do you know, can't use the serious breach, like and we only use it for extreme exception. Like, had he just put his putter down to stop it, but I don't even know if he was like he says it was all premeditated and planned. I don't know that in the moment There's he no was way. planning to take a stroke. I think he was just trying to bat it back i don't think well, he was considering what he was doing a stroke so here's the thing he could have taken and like this happens at, at like seminal and like the coleman all the time is people take unplayables after they putt because it'll roll off and roll into like palmetto bushes yeah you know oh brendan brendan's steaming right now that you just brought up a cocktail circuit mid-am event while we're talking about the so, us open but but so, so so that's very on brain podcast so like that's incredible a five footer downhill like you're like he would have been more advantageous for taking the unplayable because he would have been putting from the same spot like eight feet for seven right so like he clearly didn't know the rules because that would have been the best move he kind of gave him up he said that after it happened phil said to him well i don't know what happens now i guess we'll find out yeah so like my in my opinion like 
I don't know. You know, it, it just like it's what sucks is like he made a, a horrible mistake, like and then he backed it up with a lie. Also, I thought, yeah, that's the thing, too. Is I thought that it would have been this amazing moment and this amazing sympathetic story if he had come out and said, guys, I was so excited to come to Shinnecock. I've been close here twice before. The crew Grand Slam means so much to me. I'm 48 years old. I know I have so many chances. You know, I thought I still had a chance on, on Saturday if I pulled the Neil Lancaster shot at 29. But my U.S. Open was over, and I just snapped. And it was just too much, and it was a momentary lapse. The, yeah. the moment got the best of me. I think that would have been so sympathetic. It's like, we, we know how much this tournament means to him. And people would have sympathized with that. That it's just, you eventually, you just you lose it because there's so much stress and so much pressure <laughs> under the moment. I think that would have been a sympathetic story. But now it's, you know, we're parsing out details of a he said, be said kind of situation. <laughs> God. So, uh, no, yeah, I think he was just pissed off in the moment. He was pissed off at that pin. He thought that pin was bogus. And, you know, it turned out to be you know, kind of excoriated a little later by other players, and he snapped. There was no, I, I don't think it was as calculated. I, I think he wanted to show up the USGA by doing it, and he certainly accomplished that. But I don't think, like, there was a calculated, like, thinking about how it would play in the rule book when he did it. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he just lost it, and that would have been, like, the best course of action is to say, I lost it. And that's perfectly acceptable, you know? Um, what was your hottest take? What was the hottest take you saw in reaction to that? I, because we're in the media bubble, as as Phil or as Sean said, we're kind of like, I, I think we all agree that he should have been DQ'd or it was very bad and wrong. But like, I mean, I thought like, I mean, people some, were, of the, people some of the reaction was over the top, but I, I just I think it was still wrong. You know, you know, in the moment that just uh, just stuck in my mind the whole time was uh, Shooter McGavin. When he's in the office of uh, of of their made up tour, and he's like, "You gotta <laughs> kick him off the tour, Doc." <laughs> and I feel like there were people that were like, "Kick him off the tour, ban him from the game." You know? I saw I saw one guy say like he needs to apologize to everyone involved <laughs> and, and withdraw immediately. It's like I don't know. Oh God. Oh, uh, oh um, now let's take a break to talk about our sponsor, Greater Than. This week's winner, Brooks Kepka, works out, in case you hadn't heard. Golf is a sport, and it's important to stay hydrated to play your best. My favorite way to do so is with Greater Than. I played East Hampton Golf Club this week, and they had it stocked in their halfway house. Sure enough, I made three birdies after drinking a GT at the turn. You can purchase Greater Than on their website at drinkgt.com and use the promo code THEFRIEDEGG with no spaces for 20% off your first order. I use their subscription service that delivers it right to my door every month. It's really easy, convenient, and you can also sign up for that on their website. And this week, you will get a free fried egg hat with your subscription. That's drinkgt.com. Back to the course, I think Carfer the course had a good question here. What course improvement? What did you like more, the wider fairways or the bigger greens? I think good the question. bigger greens because I think it, the wider fairways were playable and frankly probably necessary with all the crosswinds and the way the wind blows across the fairways. I think it would have been absolute carnage if they'd been 26 yards wide. But I thought the expanded greens were cool because – what that exposed and what that made into putting surface were those steep slopes on the edges that really emphasized uh, 
you know, the width and angles and, and really made you play to the safe side and, and play to the correct side and play the correct shot because it was so penal uh, if you did hit the edge of the greens. It's not like they just made greens bigger so that people could putt from, you know, more often. It was actually, it was making the greens bigger made them more penal. Uh, and I thought it made for an interesting test. Yeah, I, I loved I loved the, you know, the improved green or the enlarged greens. I think, you know, Davis said, well, we'll get to him later. But, you know, he said at media day, if, well, let's try and focus on that. I mean, everyone's going to talk about the fairway widths and grouse about that. But, like, the improved green size is really, like, the, the genius of this restoration. I, I don't know. I, th- I think, obviously, all the way around, I, I thought it was improved improved test. But um, just watching, like, obviously, you, you spotlighted it in your preview, too, Andy. 14, it was just so cool seeing it kind of come down off both sides and, I stood on like the hill above that. I didn't even like go inside the ropes there and just kind of watched, you know, approach shots come in and, and bound off both sides or even like Fleetwood, you could leave it short. Maybe sometimes a smart play was to leave it short and putt from off the green and he made a birdie that way. So, so I, I loved like the, the, the green size. Yeah. I, I, um, I think like, I think they kind of go hand in hand, like, you know, like if you're going to do one, like, I think the first thing you do is get the width and then you get the greens, but the greens are, I think, showed so much. Like, my one of my favorite print, my favorite things is unpinnable surface on greens, where yeah. most people would be like, oh, what the, what's this point? It's like, well, that takes, like, an average shot and just, like, runs it off the green. And that, to me, is, like, the beauty of golf. And, and what it does is it brings precision. Like, in 2004, that just stopped and rough two yards off the green and then we were seeing balls roll 30 yards off the green we saw tiger woods make a seven on the easiest hole on the golf course because of of unpinnable surface and short grass around the greens i think like anybody that wants to argue with like i think one it was such a big tournament for width and short grass because it actually showed like hey this is a lot more interesting brand of golf than just watching people hack it out and and seeing people, you know, really struggle from places that we're accustomed to seeing them just, you know, slide of 60 degree under some thick rough and get it on the green close. Um, I think in terms of uh, the, we'll see what, you know, they do with 2026, but like, you know, a lot of places can't do that. I think like, you're not going to see it happen at Pebble. You're not going to see it happen at Wingfoot, but hopefully we'll see it more at, at some other venues. What will you What will you see at Pebble? I mean, I think we kind of know already, but it's just going to and Wingfoot. It's going to be more of the smaller greens with thick rough around it, less closely mown and green surrounds. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's going to be the case. Um, what are What are the other What are the other like blue blood U.S. Open venues <laughs> that have that kind of like green surrounds? I, I mean, think you know where they have a lot of unpinnable green surface is uh, Augusta and St Andrews, and those are pretty good courses. Yeah. Pinehurst. What else is in Pinehurst? That Pine, kind of test. Pinehurst, LACC. You'll see that with. Um, you definitely won't see that with uh, with Reese's Pieces in uh, in San Diego. <laughs> but yeah, it'll be goodbye to short grass at the at the PGA. You know, I was talking with Zach yesterday, um, and uh, we were talking about Blair to be. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Wow, is that? Back on a on a single name basis now. Um, so we were talking uh, about uh, I was driving back and uh, from my from playing golf and uh, 
we were talking about uh, how the USGA just can't seem to get it right. But the PGA, I think, is the one that sets up the golf course the best. But they just get the worst golf courses. <laughs> like, if, if they could somehow, like, the PGA and USGA could collude together where the USGA handled getting the golf course and the PGA set it up, I think we'd be absolutely perfect. <laughs> I wish they could share golf courses. I don't like this whole, you know, East Coast, West Coast turf battle, PGA courses, USGA courses, switching sides. And once you go to one side, you're not going to the other. Like, I mean, there's some great golf courses that they don't need to be dominated by just one organization and the other. I wish, I mean, I mean they'll just get along. That's been going on forever. I don't think it's going to change. You you go with one or you go with the other. I I have a, I have a I don't know if it's a hot take, a moderately take that I I don't think I'm not sure the USGA should have custody of our national championship anymore. So will think, the Buck? I want to know if the Buck Club will be a USGA or PGA site. I don't think it'll be either. Exclusive. Okay. Yeah, I think it'll be a cocktail tour site. <laughs> the the Blair. Yeah. No, but I think getting back to the setup, like I don't know, like how many times can like, you mess up? We, we live in the real world where you lose your job if you f up four out of five years, or you have these colossal screw ups in the most important moments of every, you know, every other year. Like the NCAA, like can do this. You know, the USGA apparently can. I, I, I think it's interesting. Like Frank Nabilo said. You know, like a month or two ago, like whatever he said, he said uh, the pro game at the highest level and like the amateur game, you know, the regular weekend game have never felt farther apart. And that's extremely dangerous. Uh, And like the USGA has this task of regulating both and setting up a championship for one and kind of setting the rules and and daily uh, daily, I don't know, routines of of the of kind of both the amateur game. I'm not sure they're, like, equipped to handle both. And I feel like, I don't know that they should have, like, custody of the national championship anymore. Maybe, like, we should have, you know, maybe they set up, they, they tend to, I guess they, they seem to operate the amateur events well enough. Although, Andy, you've told me some stories of underwhelming officials. But, you know, I, like, there should be some sort of dedicated committee, maybe, for the U.S., for the U.S. Open, that's not necessarily fully USGA controlled. That are that they're doing everything else, you know, the other weeks of the year, and, and it just, of course, this is like their primary championship, and they're focused on it years in advance. But it feels like maybe we should use some other voices, like make some mishmash committee of of pros, a Jeff Ogilvy type, Andy, uh, some sort of you I don't know, think I should be on any, and, any. like different, all sorts of different voices. Um. I think, yeah, I. it's such, they're under such scrutiny, and, like, the line is so small. Like, I almost feel like everybody's conditioned to complain about the USGA also, you know? Sure. And I think, like, there's stuff, like, the Masters hasn't ever allowed anybody to be in a position to complain, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. but part of that is because they're okay with low scores. Yeah. I mean, they've. They're okay with the score, the course being scorable. You know, they they set up the Sunday pins in places where guys can get them and create excitement and create roars. And I know it's not the U.S. Open's brand, but at the same time, you know, Mike Davis said, "I've worked at the USGA for 30 years. I've never heard anyone talk about, oh, we have to emphasize pars winning score." But there obviously was some yes 
desire to get back to par for a winning score this week. You know, there was you only had one guy under par. I think five to six under is a great winning score, but there was obviously a desire that they didn't want that. They wanted it to get back to par. And I mean, I think it starts with the problem there. I know par is a social construct, but also, I don't know. It's just I want. I it was setting to... up so well, and they had to mess with it. When I really, don't, they just didn't have to touch it. I don't think. I want a tournament to have a sliding par from day to day, because like <laughs> Saturday is a perfect example. Is like two was a par four. Um, yeah. The the uh, fourteen was a par four or par five. You know. Yeah. If- it played harder than one of the uh, Pierce Stroke average. It played, yeah. played harder than one of the par fives. And like, just just put it out there. Like today is a par seventy two. Deal with it. You know they they did that at Chambers Chambers Bay eighteenth yeah. hole and Speed dared him to make it a make it a par four again on Sunday. He said he was going to play up the first fairway. Remember that? And then yeah. Davis acquiesced and made it a par five again for Sunday. It's just so. par is like the dumbest thing in the world because like. <laughs> I, I don't, <laughs> At one point on Saturday, I I like had this. Saturday was like the worst day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, wow. Oh Maybe not the worst day, but like honestly, the coverage ended, and I just like felt like I had just like like been in like the most intense like pressure chamber fight with like a thousand people, and like what was the you weird... were cranking out content defending Shinnecock. You were on a. <laughs> The, you had to have been exhausted by the end of the, the day. The weirdest thing was that I, I fell back, like, and, and, like, all of a sudden I, like, realized, I was like, what's weird is that, like, everybody that was attacking me last year when I was defending Aaron Hills and, like, saying, like, hey, the conditions aren't right. We're just seeing good golf. Like, it's, it's dead calm. It's soft. And, like, people are being allowed to play their game. The, all those people that were, like, attacking me were all of a sudden on my team. and i and i for a second i was like wait a second am i on the wrong side of this thing but it all comes back to par you know that's the problem i think see i think mike davis is actually not that bad i don't know seems like some people think he needs to be fired or removed or whatever i think he's i think he's probably the actual like he's the good one in the group and he's just kind of constrained and trapped by his organization's history of, of, I don't know, wanting a final score that's in the, that in this identity that's par. And I think he would, I think he's the most woke of the bunch and trying to get away from, get away from it. But all while also trying to balance the constraints of the organization he works for, but maybe that's just, that may be a crockpot theory and he may be, you know, bumbling clown, but I, I don't think he is as bad as I think he's just kind of really constrained by those around him and the organization's history. I would agree with that. I think that he, I think he knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, and he's done a lot of good. I mean, he's been behind a lot of the you know width and angles and, and going to brown golf courses, going to fescue golf courses, uh, going back to public courses. So he's, I mean, he's done a lot of good for the USGA and the championship. Yeah, I, I, I think that, like, in general, like, I I mean, I hate to bring this, I, I but it all goes back to, like, we're living in the steroid era of golf. You know, like, we can't hold on to the same records. Like, 
Remember when Brady Anderson? Just, just to clarify, not actual steroids. Yeah, not actual steroids. It's the it's <laughs> like yeah, it's the equipment, the, tech, the equipment and tech. Yeah, the equipment and technology has made it like a like baseball when it was steroids. But like, remember when Brady Anderson went from a guy that was a leadoff hitter that hit ten homers a year to like two <laughs> years in a row he hit fifty homers? Like, how can we forget? Yeah, and you know, like that's exa- exact same thing that's happened with golf. Is like all of a sudden. You've got all the like you can't hold on to the same records like Brady Anderson. You, he wouldn't have hit a hundred. You know he wouldn't have hit eighty home runs had he not taken steroids. Like so he wouldn't like when you look at career home run lists. Like Brady Anderson shouldn't be where he is on the career home run list. So I think with like golf, the same thing. You have to look at this like okay, like Brooks Kepka shot. 14 under at Aaron Hills it was a par 72 but like you can't look at that and be like oh that was like you know Mike Davis's fault it's like he didn't there was no defense there was no wind and it was a soft golf course like I think if the wind had blown like it blew at Shinnecock at Aaron Hills we would have had scores like in the the four to eight under range yeah I thought I loved it uh I saw this in an old Ben Hogan interview from like 1983 and then Curtis Strange cited it when I was talking to him yesterday that Back then, someone asked Hogan if the players of today, which was 1983, were better than the players in his era. And he said, I sure hope so. If they're not, then we contributed nothing to the game. These guys are building on what we did and, and making it better. And so for so many reasons, you know, technology, track man, swing instruction, equipment, uh, these guys are, are better players. You have a better level of golf being played now than in the 1950s. You know, And so if you want to shoot the same scores, the one thing you do is you make the golf courses extremely difficult. I mean, you watch old film of the masters and guys are like banging bump and runs across, across these shaggy Bermuda greens. Um, and now, you know, greens are stimping at 12 and 13 and of course they're 7,500 yards long. And so if we weren't so obsessed with maintaining the same winning scores, you know, we wouldn't have to push the edge with course setup, but you have to push the edge with course setup. If you are obsessed with keeping the same winning scores as 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think I think that something, I mean, I just, I think something, like, this is all going to come to, like, a, a tide. And, like, I I mean, this, I think, is going to be, we're going to look back on Shinnecock as being one of those moments where, you know, the, the, the line of, of good setup and bad setup is, like, narrower than it's ever been, you know? Yeah, and here's the thing, like, the it's very, very clear, the players absolutely hate the usga it's not unanimous but it's a consensus and they do not like the usga and there seems like we're headed for something with the ball and it's only going to work get worse it's pretty clear that the pros there's only a few that would probably be against rolling back the ball or some sort of restricted flight uh it's only going to get worse make that relationship more tense uh more fraught with you know kind of derision and anger I think it's. I, I think we're headed for pretty ugly. The relationship is. I don't think it's ever going to be good, but it seems to be, you know, as bad as ever. And I think it's only going to get worse once something happens with the ball. You know what's ironic with Zach Johnson, and I love the way you described how he uh, how he delivered his message on yeah, Saturday. Yeah. But like, he was the guy. Like, uh, you know, if I would have like looked at that field and like who was a guy that actually legitimately had a shot. Zach Johnson was the guy that had the best chance if the golf course was like exceptionally hard of any player in the field. 
Like he won the Masters when the the when they were in the hard era of the Masters. He should have like wanted the golf course to be unbelievably hard. That's a good point. I mean, it seems like, I, yeah, I, I was shocked. I saw him and Paul Casey come off the course as we were waiting for Phil because they were right behind him on Saturday, and like they just blew open this door, like slammed it against the the house, and like went, I was like, oh, what happened there? I saw, I, and I looked later. Casey found a double. But I, I didn't expect Johnson to like go off on Sky Sports, and like I said, it just opens a can of worms, and everyone piles on thereafter. Hey, uh, Sean, you you got the uh, you got to get on your flight, so you're lucky enough to escape overrated, underrated. I am I'm all all too happy uh, to miss that. Yeah, I don't want to repeat. I don't repeat the same debacle as last time. Yeah, we will um we will uh catch you soon and uh have a safe flight and uh Brendan and I will wrap up this uh this pod. All right, thanks guys. Peace, Sean. See ya. See ya. You know, getting to uh some more of these questions, Brendan, now that we yeah. we've lost the airport ambient noise, which <laughs> it's a lot quieter. Um is uh Philip Johnson is Spieth becoming the forgotten man and and to make that question a little bit bigger who's the guy that missed the cut missed the weekend that you were you're kind of most disappointed in Uh I thought Rory is making me reconsider his entire career I and mean, that's that's probably excessive but I I just I'm a little concerned about um, his U.S. Open track record, uh, it's, it's future prospects, the weight we should have signed 2011. I mean, I love the guy. He's one of my favorite players. I just was disappointed to see him implode. Yeah, and, I, I, with, with Rory, I think is also, it's going to be something that we see more with this era of players because the money is so much, you know? Where, like, I'm not going to say he cares less, but, like, it's hard to care as much when, you know, you, you know, he's, he's set. And I think what happens is, like, that it, it makes you sit back and, and really appreciate athletes like, like Tiger and you could say LeBron and Michael Jordan and Kobe fall into this group where, like, winning at all costs is what drives them. Yeah, I and I think that's I think that's I think that's part of why I like him. I mm-hmm. love Roy. Is like he is pretty honest, and I, I think he's not this like robot, this psychotic competitive robot. And I think he's willing to admit that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's part of why we like him. Maybe you know why he, you know, sometimes doesn't really, you know, maybe doesn't give a rip as much as the other guy. Yeah, I, I think like I think he likes like I think like last year. I don't think he. I, it kind of got the feeling he didn't like golf. And this year, I kind of get the feeling he loves golf again. But like, you know, at the same time, like I like I personally love that he was like out playing the best golf courses in the world. This yeah, year. that's cool. Like, I think that's yeah. cool. Like he he was out like and he's talking about how much fun he's having because like, you know, at the end of the day, that's really what, you know, competitive golf is like a subset of the overall game and like him being out you know, saying, like, talking about how much fun he's having playing the greatest golf course. Like, at the end of the day, that's what the majority of the public does golf for is fun. Yeah. No, so, no, I, I I loved hearing that, too. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I'd say, and then with Spieth, I, the putter, 
It's, it's crazy. I I mean, all right. I don't think we're anywhere near like the Chuck Knobloch throwing to first base spot, but yep, you know the second baseball reference I've made. <laughs> I mean, it happened on his very first hole of the week. Ten, they start on ten, happened on ten, missed one from four feet. Um, we were off and running. I, I think, I think there's some real stuff going on there. He doesn't want to talk to the media. He wants to talk to them less. I think like he's struggling clearly with something that. I think is more than just like a cold spell. Um, you know, we heard, I think Brandel Chambly was talking about like the white knuckles of like a forward press. Like I just, I think there's like, we're kind of in a, in a danger zone with him. And then like, he's really, and he's not a happy camper about it too. So, yeah, yeah I, uh, I would, I'd agree with that. I, I think he's hitting the ball better than ever. And that might even make it more frustrating. And yeah. could be one of the things that is is making him struggle more. Um, so overrated, underrated, uh, Joey Uh-oh. D. What'd you say, Joey D? Oh, Joey D. Oh God. And this uh, is uh, who said the who who asked this? Oh, it's Marcus Starr. I mean, oh gosh, I will be charitable. I'll say he's underrated. <laughs> He's clearly um, yielding results. I, I don't know if <laughs> he's the one that's winning major championships. But uh, as a character, I think he's vastly underrated. He's great for my 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 purposes. Great for content. Seems like quite the character. You know, it's like a he's older man in a flat brimmed hat and a ripped you know shirt that's too small too small for him, and he's got. A, bit of personality uh, i think he's underrated as a character i i think he's definitely uh underrated <laughs> he, he joey d has made brandle backtrack on his uh lifting um take did you notice that yesterday no no he talked about how how big and strong uh kepka was and how you know he thought tiger would be the only one and he was wrong Amazing. Wow. Sad. It's a sad day when Brandel's backtracking on anything. It's that's what I gathered at least. Somebody might be <laughs> What what do you think about microphones in the cup? Uh they are fine. I oh. they I don't know if they're underrated, but uh I think it's a cool element to the broadcast. I think maybe they were overused, if that makes sense. I I was out on the course, so I'm kind of in and out of the broadcast, but it seems like it makes the I think at t- when you're using them a lot, it seemed to make the broadcast choppy because there were too many idiots cursing, or sometimes a player was cursing, and they'd have to dump it, and you'd get silence, and you know all of a sudden Bucks being Joe Buck or whoever the analyst is Curtis Strange is being interrupted by it. Um, I didn't mind I didn't mind hearing the sound effect of the ball going in the hole, and I think it does add value when you do pick up <clears throat> pick up like a player caddy conversation that you otherwise wouldn't. Yeah, I, I think the microphones are really good for the game. And, uh, you know, people, yeah. it would be unbelievable if you could have like an uncensored version of the, right. uh, you know, like if there if there was another network. And I know this would be incredibly hard and expensive, but I, yeah. I would honestly pay for an uncensored version. Yeah, put on like the Spice Channel or something, whatever that was. Uh, just completely unedited, uncensored 
and all all microphone all that's open all the time. What did, what did you think about it having hole sixteen as a three shot par five? Uh, I thought it was cool. What what's what's the issue with it? What what is there? I mean, I like how um, it was kind of fun to watch those guys yesterday try to put it in the right there and and have a an angle in, and they have a full wedge, and not a full wedge, but they had a wedge shot. Uh, I don't, I see no issue with it. I, I loved having a really full, meaty uh, three shot par five that wasn't like. A chip shot, you know, that was like an actual wedge shot. Yeah, I um, I, it, it's funny because like I really like I think three shot par fives are in extreme. It's like the hardest thing to design in golf today. It's yeah. you know like and, and have it be interesting. And I don't think it shows well on TV, unfortunately. But I think one of the things that those par fives at Shinnecock were unbelievable at is like they gave you like a really good chance of birdie both of them so like so like you know yesterday the wind was howling into 16 and and it was a a true three shot par five for everybody but like if the wind isn't dead into you you know it puts a a question because so like the same thing with five um if you were over the back like so if you play it just short of five like 10 yards short you have like the easiest chip shot like there's not an easier shot on that golf course than just yep. short of five. But yep. when you go for it, then if you miss long left, you're absolutely dead, you know? Right. Or right. if, it, you know, you miss right, you're you're in a really bad spot. So, like, it's like one of those things, like, it, I think that that whole golf course is kind of defined by this, like, you know, asking players to decide how, you know, like, it just constantly tests their appetite for risk. And I think 16 is the same way, like, you know, if if it's not dead into the wind like it was yesterday, it it gives you like a seventy yard wedge, an eighty yard wedge shot. But the second you try and play it up close, all those bunkers are in the in the way. Like and and you know, so you don't get that that little pitch shot uh, on that one. But like it, you know, you can take walk away with four and a half on both of those holes, like pretty much every day of the week. But you could get yourself in a lot of trouble when you go for it off of a good drive. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was startling to see Reed, like a good wedge player, come up with such oh. a shitty shot there. I mean, you know, everybody I that... only, but that that goes back to what we were talking about with Kepka. He was the only guy that hit that shot. Yeah, and right, I think, right. I think if you look at it from that perspective, that showed in 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 a micro, like in a vacuum, uh, like kind of why he won. No, I. I... I completely agree. I, I think that's we we get caught up on like the mashing, and it was yeah, it was his wedge shot. He executed in spots that a lot of other guys couldn't, and even even when saving bogey at at eleven, you know, or like DJ, how good was go that par save on fourteen? How good was right. that wedge shot he hit in from seventy yards? You know, that was <laughs> unbelievably a, a, just a beautiful putt, and then he made the putt. Like his his putting was so good too. You know, sure. sure. There were so many times that, like, you know, is this the three footer that's kind of, kind of, lip out or burn the edge? And just every time, he never gave anything back. Like dead center too. Um, yeah. Oh, KVV <laughs> never getting invited to come on the pod. Overrated, underrated. I think it's underrated. And just, just do it forever. You're gonna put him on ice. Well, it, like, if if Smartin keeps calling in from airports, he might, you know, get booted <laughs> for for audio reasons. 
Last was, we got we had airport this time in the preview pod he was like running laps around his hotel room rustling the microphone i think martin martin is perilously close to missing the cut martin does not respect good audio <laughs> no he was terrible at augusta too huh yeah I I, he's a habitual line stepper with the audio um i love this we waited for him to get off and then just buried him in the ground yeah he, well he texted us last night he's like i'm gonna call from the airport and i was like airport <laughs> i remember that <laughs> um all right uh overrated underrated last one we'll do here um usga u.s open course setups huh um, I think overrated. I think it's it's great for content, and it's a major championship, and everyone's there to write content and talk and shout and scream. And there are a lot of like general media people there that aren't in golf, and they want something to write about other than Tiger Woods, and that's what you default to. I think impact maybe is less than we that is not like commensurate with all the chatter and writing and shouting about it um i think you know course setup is obviously critical and usga has screwed it up a lot like that's this isn't to like minimize that but i think uh it's talked about a little too much and, and we continue to get the right winners at these events uh, that doesn't justify the course setup, you know, mistakes, but you know, I, I think like if we saw a setup completely like make a farce of a championship or, or kind of completely screw somebody out of a major, then you, then, then we can get into it more. But I, I think it's just, I think it's become overrated as like a, as a topic. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, under i think they do like actually an underrated good job but yeah of all the events they are under the the i guess the biggest microscope because like people come into the event expecting it to be a storyline and yeah. so and it's an easy one for people to to jump on you know whether it be even the the broadcast team i mean they were talking about it before it was ever, ever a problem. Like, you know, like that was the thing is I thought that setup on Saturday was like so good for nine holes. Uh And like, you know, it hit the back nine and I was sitting there and I was like, I was like, okay, like if you get through 10, 11, 12, 13, like without like any big issues, it's kind of, you're kind of on the home stretch because of those holes are so exposed. But I mean, it's just a, there's the the lines too small, you know, as is, and everybody's yeah. looking for it. So it's yeah. It's just, I, th- yeah. I mean, the most offensive. I I was less offended by the course setup than when I happened upon Rusty Knox in his uh, Vineyard Vines. I never saw Mullinax, but I did see Russell Knox in his red, white, and blue. Did the you, Scotsman. Did the you Scotsman. See, did you in see his Pierre? red, white, and blue skyline shirt? Did you see Piercy was wearing on Saturday the like an American flag ribboned shirt from Izod, and he got ejected. There might be something to it. I I think there might be something to it. 
but yeah, I was, I, I walked into Russell Knox following, uh, with, with a friend, friend looked at me. He's like, you, you look like, look like you just saw a homicide. I guess like my mouth was like jaw was on the ground. Like, I, why, why is this Scottish guy have the New York skyline, red, white, and blue on his, on his shirt? But I think, anyway. I think you need to dive in deeper and get a uh, correlation between gimmicky, um, scripting and performance. I think, yeah, I'm going to have some, get some big data involved. Yeah. Maybe bring Bryson in, get some Microsoft services and dive into it. All right. Hey, uh, everybody check out your, uh, new piece and we will, uh, we'll talk to you soon and thanks for coming on. Andy, great being with you. Thanks again for having me. Yeah. We'll talk soon. You've been listening to the fried egg podcast. We do the digging for you. 